So you are aware and can plan accordingly in your own heart and mind. At the end of the service today, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper. And we also have some new members to welcome to our church family. And we'll do that at the end of the service also. Pray with me once again, if you would. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us of things that are true and that will always be true. And thank you for giving us the gift of music where we can even... Be reminded and remind our fellow believers of what is true about the Lord Jesus and what is true about eternal life. We're so thankful. Please use it in our lives that we would live for your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So to begin with this morning, I would like to ask for your attention to listen carefully to two very important statements by Jesus. They will help you with your life. They will help us with the life of this church. They will help with perspective. In me, you may have peace. Statement number one. In me, as in united to me by faith, you may have peace. When a person comes to believe in the Lord Jesus, as I said, you're united to him and you receive him and all of the benefits that he earned on your behalf. So peace with God, ultimate peace with other people, a basis for peace with other people. In me, you may have peace. I just want to do this. True, even if it doesn't feel like it. In Christ, we have peace. Statement number two. In the same verse, next breath, in the world, you will have tribulation. In the world, you will have tribulation. Two great promises. I really like the first one. I don't really like the second one, but it is important It's so important in your life and in my life that we know both of these things are true and vital. In Christ, peace is ours. But in the here and now, in the world, tribulation is ours. Difficulty, tension, conflict, anything but peace is what's going to be true until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. He does go on to say in that same verse, but take heart... I have overcome the world. So we do look forward to that time when that becomes a reality. It is second coming, anticipating, if you will. But so many times Christians fail to remember these two important declarations. And so many times Christian churches in the here and now, but throughout church history, we forget in Christ, peace certainty. He's overcome the world even. It's absolutely, positively, as sure as the resurrection, sure. But what's also sure, according to Jesus in the here and now, is tribulation. And we forget this. And and here's what happens when we forget this. When we forget things like this, by the way, it's John chapter 16, if you're wondering. John 16, verse 33, which is not where we're going to be today, but in principle, it's where we're going to be. When we forget this, we think somehow that when things are going bad in our lives, maybe somehow Jesus isn't enough. And and maybe somehow the gospel needs to be improved upon because I'm not very happy and I'm not very peaceful. 
And so then we end up doctoring up the gospel, which is ruining the gospel. Or, or on the other side of things, we think that, that because everything isn't going wonderfully in the world with our relationships with other people and not everybody likes us and not everybody likes the gospel we preach, we should try to change it, doctor it up, or we're tempted to, to, to change the gospel. Or we think somehow it's up to us to get rid of the tribulation. And it's the church's call to get rid of any kind of conflict when in reality, he's the one who's overcome the world and it won't actually become reality until he returns. Well, this this matter is such a big deal that I think it's the very thing that Paul is telling Timothy in 2 Timothy, at least in principle. So we are studying 2 Timothy as a church. It's a small little letter. We call it a book sometimes because if you think in terms of God has a a great library, if you will, with 66 volumes, this is one of the volumes, 2 Timothy, and we're in chapter 3 today. And if you want to understand chapter 3, at least the opening nine or so verses, it's essentially about this very thing Jesus talked about. So Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus. Ephesus is a cosmopolitan happening city in the first century, and it's got a lot of wealth, and it's got a lot of education. It's got a lot of religion, or maybe they would say, like we would say today, spirituality. There's a lot of immorality, and the church at Ephesus is having a hard time. Timothy is having a hard time. And when you read the whole letter, you get the sense that he slash they are wondering whether or not they should be so clear and bold about the gospel. That they're having second thoughts. They're, they're, they're being tempted to maybe water things down or harshen things up, whatever people are looking for, because of the pressure, the pressure in Ephesus. And sometimes the pressure in Ephesus becomes the, ch- the pressure in the church. So I can relate. I can relate because sometimes people don't like me because of clarity regarding the gospel. I can relate because sometimes people think the gospel needs some fixing because it's not transforming the culture. I can relate because sometimes those who are not in Ephesus but in Omaha who are not Christians want to influence the church and make us different. And I'm tempted sometimes because I would like to have Omaha be a better Omaha. You get the idea. I think it's super relevant. It will always be relevant because we're always grappling with, do we stick to the script or not? Timothy's grappling with that. I grapple with that probably every day of my life. Churches have grappled with it and lots of them have caved in. Read the book of Revelation regarding the church at Ephesus. Doesn't look very good and not very much time. Not very much time at all. Maybe before we actually get into that text, listen to this. Listen to this social commentary. The conquering power of evil is on the increase. This is characteristic of the last times. Innocent babies are now not even allowed to be born. So corrupted are the moral standards. Or if born, no one educates them. So desolate are studies. Or if trained, no one enforces the training. So impotent are the laws. In fact, the case for modesty has in our time become an obsolete subject. Tertullian, end of the second century. (laughs) I bring it up and we kind of chuckle because 
some of the things that he was talking about in Africa under the Roman Empire at the end of the second century sound like they're things that I was going to tell you about from the news today. My point in bringing that up before we dive into Second Timothy is this. It's a fallen, broken world. It's been a fallen, broken world for a long time. And sometimes seem, things seem easier. And sometimes things see, seem harder. But churches have always and will always, until Christ returns, struggle with how do we relate to the pressure that comes from ungodliness? Do we change or do we not change? It's, it's a real struggle. Okay, 2 Timothy chapter 3 today is going to be our text. It deals with hard times in life and ministry. We have hard times in life and ministry. They did then. And if you're a note taker, I'm going to follow three tactics, if you will. I'm in the tactics mode lately. Um, three survival tactics for hard life and hard ministry as a Christian. Three tactics for when things are hard, waiting for Christ's return, if you will, uh, when he makes everything right. Number one, the first strategic tactic for surviving in hard times, number one, know the problem. Know the problem, and it'll be verses one to three. If you look there with me, you'll see. But understand this, or know this. Even the grammar calls for Paul saying to Timothy, don't ever forget this, Pastor Timothy. And then help the Ephesian church. Don't ever forget this as you're struggling with how to do ministry in hard times. So I would want to say, Omaha Bible Church, don't ever forget this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. He's saying it's absolutely essential that you understand that in the last times, things are going to be hard when it comes to you being a Christian. That in the last times, things are going to be hard for you when it comes to being a part of a Christian church or being a Christian pastor. Know this. This is what you cannot forget. It's going to be hard. Now, I have a question for you to keep you engaged, I hope. Have there always been hard times since the fall? Sure, there's always been hard times since the fall. I mean, we could even read the Old Testament history and say, wow, Noah had a time of it. People making fun, people mocking, all that kind of stuff. So that was a hard time for him. Moses had a hard time of it. We could use him as an example. Oh, let's go somewhere else. Esther, she had a hard time of it. Human history for believers is filled with hard times. But the Apostle Paul is talking actually about something different. And he's saying, in the last times, things are going to be hard like they've not been hard before. He's talking about escalation. In the last times, that's how it's going to be. You need to understand this. He says, in the last days. And if you're like me, when I was brand new to the Bible, I said, oh, last days, that has to do with the book of Revelation. That has to do with somehow in the future. But in reality, you read your Bible a little closer, and maybe some kind men and women come alongside of you who've read their Bible a little closer, and they say, actually, Pat, the last times is not talking about sometime in the far-off future. The Bible, the New Testament, talks about the last times being from the when to the when. The incarnation, right? When he, right? Conception, if you will. Thank you. First coming, second coming. The Bible calls the last days actually those days. And I can prove it to you. We won't take the time to turn there, but that's Hebrews chapter one. 
Hebrews chapter 1, 1 goes, talks about how God has spoken in various ways and in different times. And then it says in verse 2, I think it is, is it? Off the top of my head. I'll look at my notes. Yeah, it is verse 2. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Acts chapter 2 confirms this. Second Peter confirms this. Joel chapter 2 confirms this. So if you don't learn anything else today, I suppose you should know the last days are the days that started when Jesus came to earth. And we're living in the last days now. Timothy was pastoring in the last days in Ephesus. He's saying, Timothy, you'd better know that while Moses may have had a hard time of it, it's actually escalated. It's hard for believers to live. We have peace, Jesus says so. And he's overcome the world, Jesus says so. But things are going to be hard. And you need to know this. And it really does help to know this, right? I mean, I wish it weren't so. But if I just keep this in my mind, when things don't seem to be going well, I can say, well, what did I expect? Uh, I, what I won't do is say, well, things aren't going well, so the gospel's broken. Things aren't going well, so we need to doctor up and change what it means for Jesus to live, die, and ra- be raised from the dead. No, don't do it. Just know that in the last times, things are going to be hard. That actually is super healthy for this local congregation and for this pastor and for all of our pastors and for anybody, anyone who's a Christian. What did you expect? Now, before we move on, what's interesting is, and we're taking this out of context because we're just looking at this little section, but later in chapter 3, like next week, and in chapter 4, the call from Paul to Timothy is, the sufficiency of the gospel. The call from Paul to Timothy is, therefore, preach the truth of the gospel. The answer is not trying to get Ephesus to stop emphasizing to make up a word, okay? The answer is not trying to clean up the culture. The answer is the gospel. So, in a sense, what did you expect? We're living in the last times. But what you need to do is, and we're not really going there today, we'll go there next week, and the next week is stick to the script. Don't be misguided, misled, tempted to change Christianity and make it something it's never been. That's all. Okay, let's move on. If we move on to verse 2, it tells us why, why this is the case. For people will be lovers of self. We're living in the last times People where people are lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, un- unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Oh, so that's the problem. <laughs> right? Welcome to Christian ministry. Welcome to being a Christian in the last times. Oh, you want to know why it's hard? You want to know why it's difficult? That's why it's hard and it's difficult. Sinners have always acted sinfully, but there's this unique escalated kind of season of bad acting. And I use this end of the second century example to show you that perhaps some of this is, is seasonal. And things sometimes look a lot better in certain cultures in certain times in certain societies. And then they don't look so much better. But regardless, you stick to the script of the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. 
That is how it is regardless. Now, we can take a little bit of a closer look at that list. I read it as fast as I possibly could with only two cups of coffee because I knew we were going to come back. And, and let's at least highlight some of these lowlights. Um, but before we actually do that, there, there seems to be this... I think both things can be true at the same time. So, yes, the people of Ephesus act this way. Yes, the people in general in Omaha, Nebraska act this way or in our country, in our world. That's certainly true. But there are some some hints in our passage that seem to indicate that that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is some of those very same people want to take or or church people want to take those um, actions and behaviors and have them be okay in the life of the church. And have them actually uh, guide and direct the way we do ministry. Uh, there and commentators are a lot of commentators think that I'm in agreement. The big problem isn't oh the world is so bad out there. The bigger challenge ends up being Timothy. You're thinking, Pat. You're thinking, Church. You're thinking about making changes in light of these things to accommodate. And maybe because some of the people on the list are professing Christians. And Timothy, that's not how pastors are supposed to act. And Christians, that's not how Christians are supposed to act. It's not okay. It's not okay. So let's look at some of these low lights. For people, I'm going to insert in my notes, even professing Christians, even some leaders, they, they end up being exposed, some of them as teachers. That's what one of the reasons why I said what I said. We'll be lovers of self. That seems to drive the whole thing. That's the big one. He's going to end with that too, like bookends. That's the big problem. It's self-love. Verse 2 then says, lovers of money. Reminds me of 2 Corinthians 2. They peddle the word of God. If they're, they're saying they're Christians and they do what they do, not out of love for God and love for Christ and love for others, but out of love for money. If you didn't know it, Christianity's big business. As one current living historian said, and he took a lot of heat for it, and people tried to get him fired for it. He said, and he named a certain big evangelical organization that's conservative, he said, they're carnal. I don't think they asked him back to speak. There's a lot of, there's a lot of money involved. He goes on to say, proud, drawing attention to yourself. There's the one famous evangelist who's kind of fading away, but he, he would give this impression of humility and, you know, give the Lord a hand. He does this. I'm like, I've seen him do it in real life. And you're like, that? oh, okay, interesting. Let's keep going. How about arrogant? It's interesting when you hear certain teachers, and I'm kind of picking on teachers today because that is a flavor in here, but this could be true in general. But the arrogance of knowing what Jesus says in the Bible and then people saying they're Christian Bible teachers saying the exact same opposite of him, you just think, how could you be so arrogant to say the exact opposite thing? Then he goes on to say they're abusive. It's literally the word for blasphemy. So... First and foremost, blasphemy is when you say something about someone or something that's not true. When people blaspheme God, they say things that are, they say things about God that are patently not true. So you could, some of translations talk about slander. This day is characterized by people who say things that are not true about other people. 
And in the Christian context, they say things that are not true about Jesus. They say things that are not true about God. But it's characteristic of living in the last days, according to our context. They're abusive with their speech. Disobedient to their parents. We should do a sermon series on that, shouldn't we, boys? No, I'm kidding. I mean, not to take too much time here, but this is just part, this is actually, this is part of scripture, but it's also part of natural law. I mean, just successful societies. When, when you, you don't have the, the, the right kind of things happening as they would naturally occur in the life of the home and the life of the family, it leads to bad things when everybody grows up and everybody grows old. It's a hallmark, if you will, of catastrophe. And he's saying in the last days, this is at least a seasonal kind of characteristic. I find it interesting. Jesus even addresses adults with these kinds of words during his earthly ministry. That one of the things that false teachers would do would lead away followers that would then ignore their adult parents so they wouldn't take care of them because they would give all their money to ministry. And Jesus just lambasts those people because that goes against Scripture, but it even goes against natural moral order in the way things work. Families should have structure. Families should have order. Families should take care of each other, whether we're talking about the young or the old. And there's respect. Paul is saying to Timothy, characteristic of an upside-down society would be this kind of thing. But it shouldn't be a surprise to you. We're living in the last days. He says ungrateful, or it could be ungracious, which especially if we're talking about Christians, it just is the mind-blower, right? Because as a Christian, I of all people should be gracious because I've received grace. I'm not saying I'm good at it, but in principle, of all people, I should be gracious because God has not held my trespasses against me. And when Christians aren't gracious, it shows that there's actually a gospel problem. Let's keep going. Uh, un, uh, we had ungrateful, unholy or ungodly. So they're thinking, behaving in ways that are contrary to what God says. Heartless. Uh, borrowing from family kind of verbiage. So it, even from family kind of love, what is natural affection in the family? It's to love your, your siblings. It's to love your parents. It's to love your, 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 your children. And in these days, you're going to have things like that not even happening. Uh, then it says unappeasable. No matter what you do, reconciliation cannot be achieved there. The New American Standard says irreconcilable. Three, and then it goes on to say slanderous or gossips without self-control. So that's the opposite of Holy Spirit controlled self-control. Brutal or savage. Uh, not loving good. Treacherous as a word for a traitor. It's the word that's used for Judas in Luke chapter 6. And this is wild, especially if this is considering this is life in the church and behavior that's toler tolerated in the church. Reckless, opposite of self-control. Kind of the my favorite gross one. Sometimes we're drawn to the gross, I know. You want to look away, but you can't. You keep looking. Verse 4 says, swollen with conceit. It's just like gross, grotesque, swollen, like something that's infected. Ugh. 
with conceit. One Greek dictionary translated it insanely arrogant, bringing in the, the, the idea of crazy. It is crazy how self-consumed people are. And you go, is this like some kind of satire? Is this some kind of joke? You're like, that, that's absolutely insane how self-consumed this person is. Well, that's what's happening in Ephesus. It happens in our world. And Paul's saying to Timothy, what did you expect? And the church is not out to accommodate this. The church is to preach Christ so people don't act this way. I'm tempted to talk about TV shows where they have swollen, infected things. I can't even bring myself to watch those shows, but some of my kids do. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He's already covered that, but now he's explicit. Love for God is missing. They love self, which is the definition of idolatry. Just as a quick aside, and then we'll keep moving quicker. Um, I liked what certain authors have said in the past. I like the problem isn't our passion. The problem isn't our strong desire. It's just misplaced. So you watch people have these passionate desires for crazy things. And you say, that's so crazy. But you know, actually that desire is built in by God for something different. It should be for the glory of God, the one true and living God, not to mention the Savior. Rather than, he says in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness. Oh, that's interesting. But denying its power. And I think the power is ultimately going to be the gospel. See, that's one of the reasons in verse 5 why people think this isn't just talking about run-of-the-mill Mr. and Mrs. Atheist. This isn't talking about maybe even altogether outsiders. They actually have the appearance of godliness. So there's some kind of spirituality thing happening in general if it's on the external. Or maybe they actually talk about Jesus. Maybe they're actually either in the church or trying to influence the church. Because they're, they, they look and appear to be in certain ways godly. Maybe they talk about Jesus. Maybe they talk about the Bible. Maybe not. But you, you get the idea. Timothy, no. They deny the power. They deny the gospel ultimately. Before we move on, I think all of this is designed to be educational. Come and look at the world around us. Let me explain to you why it's happening. We are living in the last days. Be grossed out by it. Be turned off by it. But beware that it's real and beware even regarding why it's happening. Good cross-reference, John chapter 16. In this world, you will have tribulation. It's no wonder. It's no wonder. Now let's move on. Number two, another tactic, strategy, avoid the problematic. Avoid the problematic. Verses 5 to 7. Look what it says in verse 5, the latter part. Avoid such people. Also a command. Keep avoiding such people literally. So they might talk about Jesus. They might talk about spirituality. They might talk about the Bible because they have an appearance of godliness. But if all the other things are true, whether there's an appearance of godliness or not, Paul says to Timothy, and we'll take it to heart as well, avoid these people. Avoid the fakers. Avoid those who are ungodly regardless of what they end up saying. Don't have association. Distance yourself. 
And even when it comes to practicality here, I don't want people to think that I'm like the person who's the huckster trying to manipulate people, trying to rob people, trying to take advantage of people. I don't want anybody to associate me with them. Do you? When Sometimes when I watch pastors, I think, I don't want to be a pastor. In fact, it actually happens a lot. Maybe it shows you the kind of pastors I watch. I'm like, the last thing in the world I want is for somebody to think I'm like that and I do what they do for the reasons they do it. Well, Paul doesn't say to Timothy, so therefore resign. (laughs) So I'm going to take that to heart. But he does say, stay away from those clowns. He does do that. He does do that. Look at verse 6. For among them are those who creep into households. How about physically or otherwise, right? There's a lot of ways to get into people's households. And they're creepers, all right. They creep into households and captivate weak women. What does that mean? I can get in a lot of trouble based upon what I say next. Just kidding. He's not saying all women are weak. Don't misunderstand. But he's using an example Those who are weak, those who are weak when it comes to the gospel, those who are weak in the faith, those who are not mature, he uses them as an example. And these false teachers love to prey on people who are weak and manipulate them and mislead them and misguide them in the name of spiritual, in the name of Bible, in the name of Jesus. He says, burdened with sins. See, they are, they're those kinds of people. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The truth is used synonymously in this letter for gospel. Stay away from those kinds of people because you know what they're known for? They're known for that. And that is not what we do. Chapter 3, it's going to be about the sufficiency of the gospel. And in chapter 4, it's going to be about no matter what, absolutely positively, no matter what happens, Timothy, you proclaim Christ and the truth about Christ. Not like those who hijack the name gospel and Jesus. And what do they do? They take advantage of weak people. This is super sad. I think probably virtually everyone in this room knows people who've been taken advantage of by people who name the name of Jesus and do the things that are awful, some unspeakable, in the name of Jesus. So much so that it makes me not want to be a pastor. But the key to having peace and peace with God is through the one true living Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we distance ourselves from those who name the name but proclaim something different. I don't think it's an option for us to say, I don't like what's done in the name of Christianity, so therefore I'm not going to be a Christian. In fact, if it's true, it makes a lot of sense why there are so many imposters. 
but it's sad. And if I didn't know better, it might tempt me to make changes, changes I shouldn't make. To try to make more people happy or satisfied. Can't do that. That's going to be in chapter 3 at the end. Not today. In chapter 4, it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. Third strategic survival tactic for today. We'll, we'll end on this one. When things are hard and, and life is hard and ministry is hard, remember history. Remember history. Remember biblical history in this case. He says in verse 8 there, if you'd look there with me, you'll see, just as Janus and Jambres. Well, you can look for a long time for Janus and Jambres because I don't think they're ever named in the Old Testament. Jewish tradition names them as those in the Old Testament who, look at verse 8, who opposed Moses. So Exodus chapter 7, Exodus 8, Exodus 9, they oppose Moses. So we know they're the ones that oppose Moses. Now we know their names. And then it says in verse 8, so these men... These men also, so these, these, these hypocritical, puffed up with gross self-conceit, trying to mislead those who are not strong in the faith. So these men also oppose the truth. So there, know, know something about history. There were those who talked about Yahweh, talked about God, talked about the one true and living God, but in reality, they just had snuck in as deceivers. And they got all in the way of Moses' ministry. They might have been wearing the right jerseys, but they were playing for the wrong team. Timothy, remember your Old Testament history. This isn't anything new. Maybe you're living in worse times, but this has happened before. Moses was speaking the truth. He wasn't perfect, but he spoke the perfect truth. And he did so with boldness. And he was opposed So when you're opposed for preaching the truth and boldness, even though you're not perfect and I'm not perfect, we have a perfect Savior, just know that it's happened before. And for for us, we're going to say it happened in Ephesus. But for Timothy, Paul's saying, even go back and read Exodus. It isn't anything new to have imposters. It's happened before. Learn something from history about this. Also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind. Ruined in mind, literally you could translate it, which is ironic. They're claiming to have some special truth, but they're corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Based upon what they did, based upon what they said, they're beyond the pale. They're outside of the boundaries. This is an internal disagreement among Christians, which does happen. Based upon their actions, based upon their character, they're beyond the boundary of the faith. Uh, literally, the word is, is the word for reprobate. That, that they might say they're on our team, but based upon what they believe and say and promote and how they act, they're not even on our team. Pretty harsh. Pretty hardcore. Right? 
But if we're talking about the truth about Christ, the way that men and women and boys and girls can be forgiven, reconciled to God, have peace with God, have assurance of salvation, have certainty regarding these things, if you say something different in the name of the Bible, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the triune God, etc., I want to fight you about that. Not because I'm a fighter, but because the truth is the truth. And if we don't have the truth protected, we won't have the truth to be able to proclaim or pass on to someone else. So the Apostle Paul, he's the very one, we saw it last week, I think, who talked about, you know, don't be a fighter. And he's the very one who called the Judaizers dogs and evil workers. It's not, you're not looking for a fight, but if you say salvation is by grace plus works through faith in Jesus plus works, he takes the gloves off and says you're a dog and an evil worker. Philippians chapter three. Here in this case, Paul is saying to Timothy, I hope we can take it to heart. When life and ministry is hard, what did, what did you expect? We're living in the last days. And some of these grotesque actors want to influence us and influence other people in the name of Jesus. And he's saying, no, 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 and no. And whatever you do, don't think you need to accommodate them. Other people have tried, just even learn about the false teachers with Moses. And Timothy, remember this and tell the Ephesian church, remember those two individuals with Moses? They don't even belong to the right team. That's sobering for us. I don't know who's a Christian. I don't know who, who's not a Christian. It's not up to me. It's not up to you to make all of those, those kinds of decisions. But we do have the truth about the Lord Jesus. And when somebody doesn't promote the truth about the Lord Jesus, I have to say that's not the truth about the Lord Jesus. And I don't want it to influence me or affect me. And I can't wait for next week when it's the sufficiency of Scripture. Right? Stick to that script. And in particular, the sufficiency of Scripture regarding salvation in Christ. Stick to that script. Own it. Embrace it. And then in chapter 4, proclaim it. Preach it. I'm encouraged by these things. I'm not discouraged. Oh, wait a minute. Let me tell you the truth. I'm discouraged. And I'm encouraged. Should Christians be pessimistic or optimistic? We'll end on this. It's a trick question, right? Even from John chapter 16. I mean, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Jesus is not saying, so therefore, you know, don't worry, be happy. Isn't it great we have tribulation? He, there's no way. He's, he's not thrilled and happy about tribulation. So we are pessimistic. In this world, we will have tribulation. What do we expect? But we're optimistic. Because Jesus is the one who says, in me you'll have peace. Oh, and I've overcome the world. So I don't want to make it this balancing act. But we're living in the last days, which is an in-between time. 
We have assurance by the work of Christ. We have peace through him. His work is done. And so I'm so optimistic. Oh, also, I'm so optimistic optimistic because I know he's coming back. And so I've overcome the world. And so we're waiting that to become actualized, if you will. But maybe we should say instead of pessimistic, we're realistic in the here and now. I understand why things are the way they are. I sure like it when people like Omaha Bible Church. I sure like it when people like me. I sure like it when people like it when I tell them about Jesus. And I tell them about forgiveness. And I tell them about what a sinner I am and yet God has been merciful to me. I love it. I love it. And it really hurts when people don't like me for those same things and they don't like you for those same things sometimes in your own homes in this world you will have tribulation but you have peace and Jesus has overcome the world and so we can face tomorrow Father thank you for this morning thank you for time together thank you for a great Volume in your great library like Second Timothy that helps to stoke the fire in a pastor's heart to be faithful in ministry amidst a culture that is anything but. And thank you for what you've done throughout history, what you're doing even now. Please use us not to somehow be perfect because we know we never will be, but may we never tire of pointing people away from ourselves and pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is mighty to save. Lord, we know that you and you alone do the work. You and you alone regenerate. You and you alone draw people to yourself. But we also know that you have called us to be proclaimers. And we want to proclaim the good news of salvation in Christ for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.